Once again, if you remember, we'll, we'll pick up from where we left off last week. And just as a recap, what we're looking over is uh, taking a dive into and, and teaching and looking at what the scriptures say about eschatology, which simply means the study of last things. Last things. We're gonna we're gonna look at that. And the reason I picked this is there has been differences of opinion. Sometimes I'm pretty, you know, <laughs> rather big that uh, through the history of the church, but basically for a lot of lot of people, they either because I think the disagreements over it that they don't really take the time to study it out. I'm talking the average person in the church that they don't take time to study it out, or they get caught up looking at a few particular verses. And don't compare that with other scriptures and that. Just letting the scriptures speak as we would with any other subject of theology. With any other subject, you know, we compare scripture to scripture. Read it literally when possible, except when it obviously isn't. When, and when to do so would clearly contradict other very clear teaching in scripture. So that being said, I, I bought up three things. And one I just said, you know, just a spoiler alert. I am, I do believe in pre-millennialism. But it comes down to this, and that is, the reason these three things, there's three major views. And there's particulars in these views, but I talk generally speaking. There's pre-millennialism, amillennialism, and post-millennialism. And pre, and they all go around, it really about, in Revelation 20, which we looked at last week, where it is the only place specifically where it talks about the thousand-year reign after he returns to earth and sets up his kingdom. And those three views, and they go off of that. And like the one view, amillennialism, which basically, ah, uh, negative, there is no millennium. Or just none, right? We're waiting. Christ is going to return. Eternal state. And they'll argue, well, you know, it only says in one place it talks of the thousand years. And that's true. And we looked at that, if you remember. But in that one place, Revelation 20, it speaks, it mentions it specifically six times in seven verses. And if you read it literally, it, it's not very hard. It's the figurative things is obviously the chain. Remember that? The angel comes out with a great chain in his hand. But the, 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 the figurative part to it just describes to us, right? Uh, obviously, uh, it, to me, obviously, reading it literally, that Satan's, Satan's power has been done away with. He's not allowed for that thousand-year reign to interfere. His power has been taken away. He's not allowed to deceive. He's not allowed to do anything. And that's the premillennial position until such time as after that thousand years, which Revelation 20 clearly describes. He'll be loose for a little season, and then even after Christ reigning in person from his throne on earth, you know, a time we've never experienced yet, still in the heart of men lies the irrational deep-seated sin. And they willingly, a large amount, willingly rebel against the Lord once again. And then that finally is put down 
then the final judgment, and then the eternal state. That teaching has the best support for the first few hundred years of the church. That isn't the reason I believe it. And I will say all three elders of this church are premillennialist. We disagree on uh, certain aspects of it. And basically what it comes to, uh, and those two aspects would just be his, the, the, like the time of his return, which, you know, which basically just breaks down, will the church go through the great tribulation that happens right at the very end? Will they go through part of it? Or will it be here to the, you know, will, will we be taken out before any of it starts? Will we be taken out in the middle? Or will we just be here to the end? And then the other thing, the exact meaning of the restoration of Israel to its land covenants and to the extent that that goes with, does that just apply to Israel or does that apply as we like seeing places of scripture about you know, the Gentiles, all who are in Christ, all in the family of God, and they're, they're all reigning with Christ. And those differences don't matter because that happens during the millennium. So it doesn't affect how we live now. A millennium, generally teaching there is no millennium that he's raising now. We, we looked at that. Well, we'll, we'll take a look. But amillennialism, post-millennialism have problems that in one way or another, their teachings deny some very clear teachings of scripture. And they must either not deal with them or dismiss them as being figurative or spiritual or just allegorical, even though reading them literally in context makes perfect sense. So, uh, with, with saying that, I once again, but, you know, as I, I talked about last time, I don't want this, you know, I don't think this should be a divisive issue. And, and most, most scholars would agree it should not be a divisive issue. But, it's not salvific, but it's all saying to bring honor to the Word of God the way we do with every other part of theology. We need to look at every aspect of it. And I can't base what I believe upon my feelings or how I would like it to be. We must base it upon what has the Lord truly revealed to us in his scriptures, and we can't go beyond that, and we can't add to it, and we can't take away from it. And to say, you know, for some to say, well, like a premillennialist, believe in that, uh, you know, we're going to, it also teaches, right, that there'll be another thing about premillennialism, as we believe the Bible, it clearly teaches that throughout the entire waiting for his return, well, generally speaking, we'll be persecuted, we'll go through tribulations, right? We'll go through hard times, we will suffer for the name of Christ. And at times there's, you know, there's victory, it's all according to his will. But in the time, even as a church grows in that, evil all around us grows along with it. Look at that, and I just want to say that, basically coming down to... As we know, if you recall, when I started this, when, I was, uh, when we, we went through on, a, uh, on Sunday service, Luke 19, we can see from Luke 19 and map the parable 
of the talents, the parable of the pounds, and from Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, the overarching view. We are waiting for his return. We are expected and commanded to work, serve him throughout that entire time, and when he returns, we will be rewarded, rewarded according to what we've done with what he's given us. The biggest thing is, you know, what have we done with the knowledge and what have we also done with the talents and the, the various giftings he's given us. But with saying all that, before we get any further in, does anyone have any questions or just observations, comments, on what I just said or what I said last week? Okay. Uh, I wanted to look at a, a few things that, if you remember, we looked at where the main argument from one perspective, mainly amillennialism, I understand, like I said, that there's some subsets in this, some people that disagree with major things, but overall, generally speaking, if you're an amill, just like I said, you believe that there is no millennium, right? That we're serving now, Christ is going to return, and there goes the eternal state. Okay, that denies... And we, if we looked at that last week, many, many portions of Old, Old Testament prophecies and some New Testament teaching on it also. And just a refresher, we won't read them again, but, you know, of course, the, the clear teaching in Revelation 20, 1 through 7, actually 1 throughout the end of the book, but also, we looked at Isaiah 65, 20, Isaiah 11, 6 through 11, Psalm 72, 8 through 14, Zechariah 14, 5 through 21, we didn't read all the way through 21, but, and Revelation 2, 26 and 27. All which talk about a time on earth that there is just that righteousness reigns, the Lord himself is reigning, and that longevity of life is greatly produced, but there is still death, there are still sinners, and there are still people seeking after the Lord. We've never experienced a time like that, no matter how you'd want to spiritualize it. Remember, even in the very growth of the church in that, it was met with great opposition, and it always has been. I think probably the most recent example we can take is Reformation. What happened during the Reformation? It was greatly transformative. And it greatly released a lot, of, a lot of even Christians from bondage. But at the same time, it was met with fierce opposition from the then Roman Catholic Church, but then also many kings and queens who ruled at that time. And they murdered a couple million Protestants who disagreed with that. That's how that was met. <clears throat> so, you know, it's, it's hard to, you know, say that that's never happened. And to say that it won't happen, and I heard this, and this is basically the argument coming from one of their some, some of their best scholars, and as far as I could see on that, you know, and I'll name Kim Riddlebarger, Riddlebarger, whatever his name is, said, well, you see, you're returning to types and shadows. No, there are some passages that you can infer that from. When it's talking about literally the sacrifices going back in. But all the ones we read have nothing to do with that. And to say what? That, that there isn't going to be a time? That, that worshiping the Lord? That people, that people being expected and commanded to worship the Lord Jesus Christ? To worship God when he's sitting on his throne? That's returning to types and shadows? 
They hold that view just to bring up their view. See, there is no millennium. And they want to just dismiss Revelation 20 and look at it as completely... When, when, as we looked at it, when you read it literally, it says in there six different times. Satan will be bound a thousand years. That's after his return. He'll be bound a thousand years. The, the saints will rule with Christ for a thousand years. After the thousand years, he'll be loose for a season. And it makes that point six times. The same exact thing, a thousand years. It is so clear, the teaching on it. And again, there is no time, no time in history that, the, that all those Old Testament verse scripture passages we read we, that it describes any time on earth we've ever experienced. None of them. So, you know, they, they have to deny that, you know, clear teaching of, his, of, a, you know, of a time that it comes and saying that Revelation 20. You know, beyond that, premillennialists want to have a lot of disagreement beyond that with a millennialist, the general teaching, right? That things will go on, evil progressively gets worse, right? As the church is growing, the Lord is adding to the church daily. I know there's some differences in these things, but okay. I, I would say that's where our biggest hang-up with a millennialist is, that they completely deny the clear teaching of Scripture about a millennial reign of Christ before the eternal state. And, you know, I, we premillennialists have a problem with that. But it's, again, it's not a divided issue. It's not a salvific issue. But how to hold to a position like that, that you want to just, that you couldn't just humbly say, you know, it does appear to be a time. And one of the biggest things is they have this deal saying, how could, how could there still be sin? That's how they, 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 they ignore all those prophetic passages, basically with this. How could there still be sin and death and decay existing at the same time that the Lord glorified is on his throne and glorified saints are throughout the earth? How can that be going on at the same time? And premillennialist answer to that would be, well, right, with God all things are possible. It's so hard. In limited ways, when Christ at times revealed his glory, but God was in the flesh and he was on earth, and there was sin and decay all around him. God himself, you know, he allowed himself to be put to death by these people. Judas was with him three years, saw all his miracles, heard all his teachings, and in the end was a complete reprobate, right? Was a sinner. Was a great sinner who betrayed, who betrayed Christ. You know, we will look at all, all these things, and the whole thing is conjecture. They just can't, in their eyes, they can't understand how it could be that a glorified Lord and, and people in glorified body as saints live besides unglorified people. Is that so hard to believe from the same God that spoke the entire creation into existence? I'd say no. It, again, eisegesis. You're reading into the text and you're dismissing it according to your own understanding while denying much scripture on top of it. And that's, and that's uh, mainly what I want to say about that is, again, you've got to be true to the word, right? You can't just dismiss that teaching. Does anyone have any thoughts about any of that? I 
think what you're saying is clear. Um, I, it's the reason why one of the reasons why this is so important is because you know it, it does get really practical because when you think about all the things that um, are going on in the world right now, there is a lot of cultural upheaval, mm -hmm. especially in the West. Yeah. And because of that, I think there are a lot of concerns about what are we to expect in the next 50 years, and 100 years, and so forth. And Christians will think a certain way about these things according to what they believe about eschatology. You know, I, I know I talked to you about that, but there's the radio broadcast where post-millennialists will look at what's going on and see it as a temporary setback. Uh, but secularism is basically going to collapse, and that gives the opportunity again for the, the light of the gospel to go forth. And then there's uh, amillennialists who might see this as coming to the Gog and Magog battles, and then the end will come and Jesus will come back. And premillennialists see this as possibly um, the time where soon the Antichrist will be revealed. So it, it, it changes the way in which you think about the current situation. Whereas I think whatever you believe on that, you just, you have to be faithful day by day to do what the Lord has told you to do, no matter what happens. Yeah. Uh, because we don't know if this is that time or not. Uh, but either way, it's very practical to go to the text to just try to have the right understanding. I think what you're saying about premillennialism is the right understanding concerning the end as far as the things that we know it until Jesus comes back. Concerning the and I'll say another thing. This ties in to other, other scripture and other beliefs that we have. Let me explain that. So the Evangelists, one of their big hangups. I'll, I'll say the reason they have they have trouble believing in a millennium is what I just said about sin still being there. How could there really be a rebellion at the end of the thousand years when it's so obvious? The Lord Christ Himself is ruling on the throne, right? There's righteousness for a thousand years or a long period of time. Either way, you know, it's a round number. Either way, it's it doesn't affect a premillennialist understanding of it. I'm not going to hurt by saying, is it exactly a thousand or not? Because really, that's that, that's really neither here nor there. I mean, it just it's obviously a long period of time. <clears throat> the thing is, and a lot of people don't get this, how it goes in when we talk about Right. Man is dead in his sins. The problem, the big problem is that we're born in sin. And from the very beginning, before, before the fall, what was it? You know, we see that Satan comes in and he's allowed to deceive. He's allowed to try to deceive Adam and Eve. But remember, this is all part of the plan. They went along with it. Why? Because they did what they desired most. So before there was sin, they desired to go against God's clear command and rebel against God. Even after his reign on earth, physically and seeing everything, still in the heart of men, there's still going to be there's still going to be unregenerate. There's going to be professing people, people, people who outwardly, outwardly because they have to will bow the knee in their hearts are just waiting for that chance to rebel again. And it goes back to our teaching also, and you know, it, 
so much of it is put down that most people in Hilarians, not saying that other people don't, but what I understand, this ties directly into saying, right, God is sovereign over salvation. God regenerates a man or a woman to believe on him, to, to bring them to salvation. Yes, whosoever believes is saved and justified. But you do not believe if God does not regenerate you, if he does not choose you and regenerate you. But it all goes together, right? The utter sinfulness of man, the irrationality of sin. I mean, when you think about the irrationality, but why would you disobey and rebel against God, who you know exists? You know that you know Adam and Eve knew that they knew that they knew, right? They're communal. But it, it, it goes hand in hand, right? That, that we have trouble understanding. Well, you know, like sometimes we can forget where we came from. You know, I read this now. I've been a Christian over 30 years. Well, yeah, this is true. Did I always believe this way? No. And do I still struggle with things? Yes. But it's still, you can see how it links right in. Those people saying, well, I just, that can't be because, you know, the people ain't going to sin and rebel against God, rebel against God in the end when they see him. Oh, really? Then why is it told when, when they said, if they will not believe the scriptures, they won't believe even if one rises from the dead. Right? The Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day, they saw Jesus' miracles. They heard all his words. What did they do, though? They accused him of being of the devil. They rebelled against him. They put him to death. All the clear evidence in the world does not matter unless God regenerates the heart. It does, it does go in with that. I'm firmly convinced on that. I haven't heard people say enough that, but I keep asking myself, why do they just want to argue against plain teaching? You know, it just, it, it goes along with the other hand, I'm not saying all people, you know, form with that, but this understanding, we don't quite, we don't quite get it. Why is it that, you know, God saves some and not others? Well, he's going to put on display all his attributes. All his attributes. And his judgment is one of his attributes because he's holy. But that he's graceful, gracious, merciful, or long-suffering, or other attributes. He puts that on display in salvation. But, you know, it, we can't just pick and choose what we want to believe. We just, we submit to Scripture and we, we read it literally wherever possible. Again, except one to do so with God to others. But what I was saying, Scripture interprets Scripture. If parts of your view go with other doctrines or go to other places of Scripture that would cause a contradiction or negate other teaching on other doctrines, whatever you're believing about that particular passage or passages is wrong then. It's that simple. You know, God didn't mean for us to just constantly walk around in a haze about these things. Okay, I said a lot, I say another thing, but like I said, that, that's just basic on that. I want to touch on uh, post-millennialism. Now this, in a way, amillennialism posts will say there's not a lot of differences. Because, you know, I said, right, pre-mill, we believe. We do believe there's some differences in that, but overarching, we do believe. And all three of these believe the Lord's going to return physically, right? 
Amos believe no we're 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 in the the millennium we, we just don't understand it right there's no millennium Christ is going to return and you know then the eternal state I just said you know besides that you know for the most it, it denies certain clear aspects but around the rest we believe that you know I mean the church is going to suffer right the people will still be saved right but the you know the wheat with the tares we agree with all of that. But where they say email and post mill are the same, post mills will, they say there's a millennium, but we're in it now. The millennium started, right, when Christ died, when he rose again. And the church is basically going to Christianize most of the world. And a lot of those Old Testament passages are actually fulfilled by the church. Like I said, there's differences on some aspects of this, but overall, right? And then, when the world is mostly Christianized, whether it's not that most people will be saved, the majority, they, they do say, the vast majority will say, the majority of people will be saved. Whether that majority is 51% or 95%, yes. But most of the world will be following Christ and God's law. Because we'll Christianize society. And then, the Lord will return. And then we go to the eternal state. So you can see that, Yes, as far as when we talk about the millennium, we got to understand, so what are we talking about? To a premillennialist, millennium means the actual millennial reign of Christ after his return. To an amill, well, there just is none. We're just waiting for his return. To a post-mill, well, there is one. We're in it now. And the church is going to, those promises that are to be fulfilled by Christ personally when he returns will be carried out in the church in the here and now. Well, that denies certain aspects. And both of them do. And I want to get to this. First of all, in post-millennialism, I've listened to a lot of their arguments. And a big one that comes up, saying that Christianization as society, is turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is important. We'll see how this, uh, you know, and how they interpret this, it causes them to look at other scriptures differently. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 23. Okay. But every man in his own order, right? And he's talking about for as well in verse 22, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Verse 23. But every man in his own order. He's talking, you know, about Christians, right? Christ the first fruits. Afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. Then come at the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. I read that whole thing because a lot of them have to stop. They didn't do a lot of explanation unless you press them on verses 25 <laughs> through and 26. Okay. And there is this reason for that, right? Is because they're saying in verse 24, according to the Great Commission, Matthew 28, when Jesus said, all power has been given me in heaven and earth. Therefore, you know, go, you know, baptize the nations, right? Teaching them to observe. They're saying that's what we'll do, right? That, that, that's referring to we're going to Christianize the nations. Well, no, he says you first become disciples. We're discipling Believers, that's what that's about. But the, the way they want to interpret it, they go, "Well, all power has been given unto him," and therefore, what this shows 
Is Christ the first word? Afterward, they that are Christ that is coming, then cometh the end. So he says, when he comes, right, in the resurrection, right, where all his it is coming, then's the end. That's the way they interpret it. Then's the end, right? Then starts the eternal state. Because they want to put on a sin. So, so, first, let's consider a couple things. One, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. So they're saying in order to this be true, that right now we're putting down, the church is putting down all, all, you know, that all rule and authority and power that tries to stand against Christ, right? Then it says, Christ will reign till he put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Now to a premillennialist, we look at all those Old Testament verses that talk about there still be death during that time, right? But there'll be great righteousness reigning on that. So the last ending of sort is death, according to our understanding, and I, I firmly believe what the Bible teaches, and along with Revelation 20, death is not defeated until the final judgment. Then the eternal state. Because death is no more. Sin is no more. But not until then. Another thing about this. They try to put it that they that are Christ that is coming, verse 24, then cometh the end. And they want to read that as since he didn't use the same word afterward, the then means now. Right? He returns. All, all in him are resurrected. Then the eternal state. Well, we got to look at we got to look at really the meaning on that. First of all, up in verse 23, but every man in his own order, Christ the first fruit, Christ the first fruits. Right? We know Christ was the first fruits unto God, right? When he rose. Afterward, they that are Christ that is coming. So they, they agree with that. So afterward, he uses the word afterward. And that Greek, that Greek word, and specifically it means this. After that. Then. So, after that, then, after what? After his, you know, after he has risen, right? Afterward, so an interval of time, right? After that, after he rose, right? We know he ascended to heaven. You know, then there's a, a time period afterward, you know, when, when we're going to be his, at his coming. So, right, there's a time interval between Christ being the first fruits and those that are his when he returns. Well, and then that word then, they want to say, well, it's not the same word as afterward. So it must mean immediately following, or to that extent. Well, here's what the word then means. <clears throat> it is a particle of succession in time or logical enumeration. In other words, so it's either one of these two things, right? It is either a separation of time or right logical enumeration so two comes after one three comes before after two right logical enumeration it goes on 100 before 200 it means either of those two things here's what it means so it can mean what's <laughs> funny right then so it, it, it could mean that but it, then in, in the essence of moreover, or it means after that, afterward, furthermore, or then. So it either means, well this, let's just read it 
and come to the determination of what it can mean. Let's use those different things. Then come at the end. Okay. Afterward, the end of Christ that is coming. Moreover, come at the end. That doesn't seem to go well with English. Okay. Uh, and just the word then uses, uses the same, just the, the word then, right? But we also said it has to be a particle of succession of time or our enumeration. Okay. Or it means after that. So they that are Christ that is coming, after that cometh the end. That makes sense. Or it means afterward, afterward cometh the end. Okay, that, that makes that makes sense. Furthermore, okay. They that are Christ that is coming, furthermore cometh the end. That's not really good English, is it? That's not really good Greek, that's not good speaking. Or then. Just as he used the word then. Just using the word then, in other words, meaning afterwards, or after that, or after a period of time. And so in almost every place it's used that way. And let's just look back, right? Context, context, context. How does Paul use it the other two times in the same chapter? Go back to chapter 5. I mean, in, in chapter 15, I mean. Uh... And starting in verse 3, you know, Paul's talking, well, for I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, verse 5, and that he was seen as Cephas, then, same Greek word, then, right, of the twelve. So what do you see? First, he was seen as Cephas, afterward right well, of course that wasn't a, that wasn't a great succession of time but afterward then of the 12 verse 7 after that he was seen of James then of all the apostles so something came before and that's the same thing so if we go back to 23 and 24 it just doesn't tell us a period of time the post-millennialists want to say, and the millennialists, right, that, well, he returns, right, and then then comes in there, then there's eternal state. But we know from the Old Testament scriptures, and specifically Revelation 20, which they want to ignore, that then we understand that's a long period of time. Just like in the whole context, just like the first time, how long has it been already since the first fruit, since Christ ascended? Since Christ rose, right? How long have we been waiting for his return? Going on 2,000 years. Right? There's a period of time. Just have to be a period of time after he returns and after the resurrection of the saints and the glor our glorified bodies and we're ruling and reigning with him as we talked about last week. So there's definitely an interval of time there. Anyone have any... Any thoughts about that? Okay, the other thing they want to go, and I want to go that, that, that in, in both views, there's things that they do with certain scriptures that they got to deny it. So the A-mills want to say there's nothing. So they'll dismiss the fact, now they'll say, well, obviously, so there's some kind of figurative deal that Christ is bound. I mean, Satan is bound, so he's not allowed to deceive, but not to very much of a degree. 
we would say no. The script, Revelation 20 is very clear, right? There's a chain, you know, there, there's, a, there's a chain put upon him. He's thrown into a pit. It's sealed, and he will not be released for a thousand years. That describes, if we were reading about anything else, we would understand and we would agree that describes his power is taken away. He's not allowed. He's not allowed to rule or be the God of this world during that thousand years, small g, right? The prince of the power of the air, right, is bound up in a pit for a thousand years, right? He's not allowed to. Now, how do we know that? To deny that, well, then, and we're just going to take a good look at that because I have some things. So first of all, is Satan bound now? However they want to look at it, when they want to say, well, his power has been limited, you know, does Satan still deceive now? They go hand in hand. They would say to the degree, Amos and us say, well, practically not at all, his power has been greatly taken away. Well, yeah, I would say this, uh, First, go to Acts 5.3. We'll see during, you know, just as history shows us from that time even to this present day, right? Well, what, is, what is the people of God's experience? There is something about experiential religion, you know, and does, it, does our experience line up with the scriptures? But Acts 5, verse 3, we know the story about Ananias and Sapphira. But here's, here's Peter, verse 3, chapter 5. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled thy heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? So, Satan hears he's allowed, he has the power, he's, right, he's deceived Ananias in the way so he lies to God. Sounds like he still has some power there. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We just want to take a look, right? Does, does what we're believing or what we're hearing... You know, does it line up with other areas of Scripture? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 3. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, shine unto them. Well, who's, who, who's blinding their minds? Satan doesn't sound like he's bound up or he's or he doesn't have any he's not he's not allowed to have power and, and deceive people. So go on there to Ephesians chapter six. Time here, Ephesians chapter six. Ephesians chapter six. Verse 12, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Well, if he's bound, why are we having to wrestle against them? I mean, he's bound, but all his minions aren't? You have to just, you know, common sense on this. I, I just, uh, there are some other ones too, but... Uh, Look at that. I'll be finishing up here, but uh, go to 1 John 5. First John 5. I'll read 18 with it because, of course, we have hope because, right, God will never... 
put us through something we cannot bear, but we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. It just means their lifestyle is not one of sin, right? You live to, in a desire to please and live for God. But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one touches them not. Verse 19, and we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. Okay, so what, once from those verses, that two positions, mainly on A-mill and post-mill, according to the scripture, Satan's not bound. You can go to 1 Peter 5, that's where he talks about, we know Satan is, you know, wandering around as a roaring lion, seeking to be made a bower. There's other scriptures in 2 Timothy, in 2 Timothy, uh, you know, chapter 3, 1 through 5, and in chapter 4, 1 through 4, and verse 13, Obviously, even in the church, people get, get, are given over, right? And they fall to listen to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Seducing, deceptive, deceiving spirits. So obviously, Satan is still deceiving. He's still deceiving now. So he hasn't been bound up with a great chain. He has, he's, he's still allowed you know, he's still allowed, but the, but scriptures teach in the premillennial view, and I believe that the scripture backs it up, that there'll come a time that he won't. There'll come a time when he won't, and then, right, and and God will be reigning from his throne. Jesus will be here on earth during that whole time. But in the end, right, in the end, we can't blame sin on Satan. Sin is, there's a certain rational, because sin is in men's hearts. And they'll still choose to rebel against God, even though clear indications is that it's completely foolish and foolhardy. And it's completely wrong to do so, but somehow they convince themselves or whatever. But just the utter wickedness and irrationality and foolishness of sin is bound up in people's hearts. And it takes regenerating power of God to get that out. But with that, we run out of time. I just want, you know, when people look at this, when you say that, as we looked at several scriptures in that, but when you look at Emil and they say, well, Satan is bound up, what do they want to do? They want a lesson of, well, he only is allowed to have some power. Well, through him, he's blamed for, you know, deceiving a person so he could lie to God, deceiving people so they can rebel against God, you know, blinding the minds of the lost. So they, don't, so they don't see the gospel and understand the gospel? In what way has his power been limited? Now there'll be a time at the very end, you know, right before Jesus' return, there'll be great signs and wonders, but still, right, it just, it doesn't logically, in sequence of scripture to scripture, it doesn't line up. And, and that view can be dismissed. Um, amongst other things that, you know, the scripture just talks about. And when post mill will look at that, but when they... When they want to talk about, uh, we'll take a look at that. A lot of people look at that because the thing we'll look into. A great way, one, when they try to when they try to say there is no lamb, like it's it's now because when he returns, then comes then state. We looked at that. Grammatically speaking, it makes no sense except to say there is a there is a length of time between his his physically returning and then the end, which would be the eternal state. And we looked at that. The next thing we're going to look at first when we come together. The next time, you know, and it won't be won't be for three weeks now because then Dean's going to be be teaching on church history. But they try to use the parables of the leaven, the parables of the mustard seed, and so on. 
Look at Matthew 13 and look at the corresponding references on there. And here's what I want, want you to think about. Context, context, context. They're saying what those things, and I'll just give you an example, right? When he says, like, the kingdom of God is compared to a mustard seed. If we all recall that, right? Which showing the smallest of all seeds is put in there, right? But it grows up and it becomes a huge tree, right? And then he said, kingdom of God is like leaven and the woman put into, you know, the bread until it was all leaven. And they say that's talking about Christ, Christianized in the society. It'll take over that. But if you look at the whole context, it comes after he talks about the son of man sowing the seed. And the seed takes root. When it takes root in somebody and grows up and produces 30, 60, and 100 fold. And then he goes on and gives all the other parables in the same thing. So in the first time it was, provide, it was going individually to each person, the ones who received the seed, the ones who got born again and regenerated, they produced fruit. Their faith grew, right? And those that did, right, there's all different kinds of them for various reasons, but they weren't regenerated. They didn't produce any fruit. So then, how does that start? That faith, the beginning, we become born again, we grow up. That's why I've always understood that. That's the way I think it is best explained because context, context, context. If the beginning of the parables and the first parable, and especially when he explains it three different times, all refers to an individual Christian. Their lives, after they come to faith and, the, and, and what the Word of God produces in their life, how do the rest then switch to how are, how are Christians influencing the nations? It doesn't line up contextually. Right? You're making it, you're reading something into it that it doesn't say. Now, does that not mean that we as Christians can affect society? Yes. I'm saying, but that's not what those scriptures teach, so they shouldn't be using them for that purpose. Because context, context would say it's talking about the, the effect of the word of God in the believer's life. Okay. Uh, we're out of time, but does anyone have any last comments? All right, yeah, Fred, if you get, if you could turn it off. And just go ahead and turn it off. And as soon as he turns it off, we can close this in a word of prayer. Please.